0: You know, currently, as most of you know, our uh, government is in a partial shutdown and uh, struggling to work things out. We have, of course, a a very important issue coming up in the next few weeks over the nature of uh, debt ceiling. And in the midst of all this, you have a nation that is spilling much vitriol over their government and being critical and uh, at the. very, very high ratings of disapproval over the nature of Congress and their working. And, and um, I raise this not to encourage you toward that uh, or to confirm you in it. I, I think we would be all much better served um, if we would pray more for our men and women who are leading this country as they will Uh, it will not simply serve us, but they will stand before God uh, to give an account of both their actions and their motivations over what they've done with the responsibility that God has given to them. I've raised it for this point. When we look at our own country and our own government, and we look at other governments, particularly in the Western culture, uh, there are things that we can find uh, that probably can be improved um, in terms of justice and Equity, and uh, but but I, I say in the Western culture per se, the governments are, are quite good. People tend not to move out of this country because of the government. Uh, although you may have threatened to at one time, um, we have a very good government. But it is a government of men and women, and so it's a it's an always faltering government. And uh, there are many governments of which we now know and and currently. Uh, that you would would abhor having to live under. But what these things do is they give us a point of comparison that don't you long for a government that would be marked by peace and by righteousness and by justice and by equity, where there would be full trust, there would be full transparency. Don't you long for that kind of, of system where the ruler or the authority structure would be Uh, wonderful and and have power but use it compassionately and use it peacefully. Uh, What we have here is we exist within these governmental frameworks and we often grow frustrated and tired. And yet what Isaiah is promising us here is nothing short of this perfect government in which he is inviting us and encouraging us to live. I mean, this is a promise of a future government that is so exciting, and it's so it 's irresistible to not want to long to be a part of this government there 'll be no more fear over insecurity there 'll be no more fear over loneliness or, or, or inequality or unrighteousness or think of the nations that suffer under the injustice of the systems of bribery and paying off the courts. None of that. This is going to be a government that Isaiah is speaking about, a day to come when there will be a government uh, that will be glorious. And, and, and that's what we're going to look. You're going to see this passage, and it reminds you of Christmas, but I'm going to try to set it in its context, not just how we've taken it out and, and set it up for Christmas. But, but I, I want you to think through how, how wonderful it will be to be under a king who's wonderful, powerful, compassionate and peaceable, and he's leading a kingdom of perfect righteousness, perfect purity, moral uprightness in every dimension. Now, when we read it, I want you to think of three Ps, too, because I'm going to talk about the problem that this is addressing, this problem of man, and then the promise that God's going to give us. God's going to give us a promise to confront and to challenge this problem and it's going to be through a person. So I'll refer back to that, but just to keep your mind around those three P's. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1. He says, "But there will be This is the pro- he's going to promise us. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali." There's the promise there right in verse 1, Okay, that there will be no more gloom for who, for who uh, her who is in anguish. Now, that's a comprehensive promise. It's glorious. There's no more gloom. It's comprehensive. It's bold. But I want you to see it set in the context of a problem of, of this darkness. See, there's a problem here that Isaiah addresses. Look in, the, look in verse 1. He says, In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali. Now, you've been with me through this series in Isaiah. So you know this contempt or this humbling of this land that's taking place. Ahaz is king. This Syrian army is coming to bear on Israel, to bring about judgment. This Assyrian army, and the reason, in part, that Zebulun and Naphtali are mentioned is because they were the northern area of, of, the, of the country of Israel. And so Assyria being to the east going along the Fertile Crescent, coming down into Israel, they're going to go through those two areas first. They're going to hit them first, and they're going to hit them hard. Now, remember Assyria, because the language here is of this darkness in the valley of death. Remember, Assyria was probably the first, well, it was the first superpower. There were other world powers before Assyria, but they didn't seek the domination of the world like Assyria did. Uh, Assyria was a a superpower uh, that was the first one to have a corps of engineers. They were the first power. Uh, They invented siege works where you build ramps up, so anybody in a walled city once safe is no longer safe now. They were a brutal, effective fighting force. They invented and practiced crucifixion. They would take back the skulls of their victim as evidence of their military success. They were the first nation that deported people. So what they would do is they would conquer a land. They would take part of its people and move it to another area of their kingdom that was conquered. And they would take those people and deport them to there. So they would mix peoples, thereby cutting out any nationalistic fervor that might threaten their power later. It was a brutal people. Now, they're coming. They're coming. And they're going to hit Zebulun and Naphtali first. Can you imagine the darkness? I mean, can you imagine families just being ripped asunder? Some family being just deported. You never see them again. You never have a hope of seeing them again. And and what they would do to people that they conquered was brutal. Some of the things that they would do, I don't even want to mention. Because I know what you'd do. You'd squirm. It was absolutely. And so when you see these metaphors to people walking in darkness, to people who are dwelling in deep darkness, you begin to understand it. But if we were just to stop there and to say that the warning was over this kind of physical, military, economic, or social devastation, we wouldn't be going far enough. See, what, what this was is, is this darkness is really speaking to the, to the moral darkness, to the spiritual darkness of the people of Israel. In other words, God had warned them that when you turn aside from God, when you are ungrateful and you're unthankful, that this is the judgment that falls upon them. Isaiah had warned them. In chapter 3, verse 9, he says this, The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster on themselves. In other words, the darkness that they're in is just not the threat of military uh, conquest, but the fact that they had turned aside from God. And now God was letting judgment fall upon them. And we saw that last time when he said, Ahaz, I'm done with you. And now it's coming. I want you to see the nature that it was their sin that brought about this darkness. In fact, the verse right before our passage in chapter 8, verse 22, here's what Isaiah says. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness the gloom of anguish and they will and they will be thrust into thick darkness so that's that's the problem that's the problem that Israel is facing and it's going to be the problem to which this promise is going to come now let me just stop for a minute and draw us into this we don't have invading armies at our shores right now but but i think i think by and large all of us understand the nature of the type of darkness that they were facing. It's not as great, I don't think, but there's the fear of of financial insecurity. There is the fear of terroristic threat. We live generation after generation. We see one tyrant raise up to, to torture people, another tyrant, it never ends. I mean, you look in our world now, it's the same thing. It's the problem of humanity. We have one problem after another, it's the human condition. Now, I think most of us realize that. Whether you're a Christian or not, you understand this world is not functioning as you would hope it to function. But what the world doesn't realize is the darkness beneath what we see. The darkness that we see, but we don't see that sin is at the base of this. We don't don't tend to look to God when we're confronted with these things situations. In fact, you saw in verse 8, it says, and they will look to the earth. That's what, that's what people tend to do. That's what, what the world tends to do. When you encounter a struggle, you encounter a problem, you tend to look to the earth. What kind of alliances can I make? Uh, what can I change in my life? Will a new husband? Will a new job? Will a new wife do it? H- what, what, what change do I need? A new administration. Isn't it interesting? Every four years, there's this utopian language about things are going to be totally different now. They're going to be totally different depending upon what party's getting in. And it's always the same, is it not? It never measures up to what we think. Oh, well, going be, he's going to be the guy. He never is. Maybe it's going to be a woman next time. Maybe she'll be the lady. No, it won't. We have this look to men, to technology, to changing situations. We look to the earth. I love it if you were to read chapter 8. Uh, Israel had fallen into such spiritual depravity that they were consulting mediums and spiritualists for wisdom. They weren't looking to God. And so Isaiah says, why would the living look to the dead to benefit them? That's what we do. We look to the earth. But see, the Christian is different. The Christian understands darkness. The Christian hates the darkness, but understands the darkness as a product of sin. See, when we rebel against God, when we turn against God, as Israel, so us. When you turn against God, you walk away from God, you don't seek God. Well, then relationships go awry. Your relationship with God, your relationship with others, your relationship with this world, your relationship with yourself begin to go awry. The Christian understands that sin is not simply a bunch of acts that you're to avoid. Sin is a posture. It's a condition that we have. In fact, the scriptures call it kind of in bondage to sin or slavery to sin. This is what brings about the problem that we have. The, the Christian knows that they were drawn from being a zombie. I mean, we have this fascination with zombies now that's incredible. The movies are a lot better than they used to be in the 60s with zombies. They were really bad. We have zombie 5Ks now, which is pretty cool. But, but, but we were like we were like zombies. You're living, but you're not living under God. You, you're moving and you're existing, but you're not understanding the things of God. There is life, but there is no life, is what, is what it is. And the Christian knows they've been delivered by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That's the difference between the Christian. The Christian knows he was dead. The Christian knows he had a problem. The Christian knows he was in darkness. But now he hasn't. He's been drawn out by Christ. The whole idea of John Newton. I was once lost, but now I'm found. I was once blind, but now I see. In John 8, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see that light-darkness imagery used intentionally because it's used throughout Scripture. That's the problem. The problem fundamentally is sin. And sin has its effect and its results in Assyrian nations and people turning to the earth. Okay, so what does God do with this problem? What has God done? Well, he's made a promise to us. And I want you to look with me in 2 through 5 because he's promising of a time coming. He's promising us something so glorious, something so exciting, that to not be encouraged by this, I would venture to say you may be a zombie. So look at two. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. In other words, he's saying, delight is going to replace despair. Hope is going to push out hopelessness. Joy is going to cover mourning. There is a time coming, a light will come. And here's what it's going to do. It's going to lead us into joy. In verse 3, he says, You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Think about it. I mean, the harvest time, food, sustenance is coming in, in great measure. Or dividing of the spoil. That the spoil now, we've had a military victory, and now we have all their stuff for us. It was a time of great joy, a time of great filling. And and what the promise is, is this day is coming. This day is going to be filled with joy, and it's going to be filled with deliverance. Look with me at 4 and 5, because these are the reasons for the joy. He says the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken, as on the day of Midian. That's just a reference to Gideon. Remember, Gideon was a ruler during the time of Judges. The nation had fallen into deep, deep darkness. And God in mercy raises up Gideon, a no-name leader, with a ragtag group of about 300 people, and they put to flight thousands and thousands of Midianites, those who were crushing and oppressing Israel. God raised up a deliverer, and he crushed the enemy. And now they had freedom from bondage and war. Now, we kind of know a little bit of that, in this country, you know, back in, in May of 45, when they declared VE Day, victory in Europe. Now, some of us were around, most of us were not. We've seen pictures, perhaps, or perhaps you've read about it. There was dancing in the streets. I mean, there were people just literally dancing in the streets. War was over. And then in August, with VJ Day, victory over Japan. Uh, Confetti was in the air, jubilation. I mean, it was unbelievable. Can you not imagine? All the soldiers are coming back. There's no more war. I mean, there was happiness and satisfaction. Well, what Isaiah is saying is there's going to be a day where even the boots and the garments, the lowest implements of war will be burned. There'll be no more conflict. There'll be no more war. There'll be peace. There'll be satisfaction. There'll be plenty as at the time of harvest. Again, if we were just to see this in some physical, one-dimensional way, we'd be missing the point. The bondage that that Isaiah is speaking about is the problem of sin. That that there's going to be coming a day where the bondage of sin, you and I know the bondage, try tomorrow morning, you get up, I'm not going to sin for four hours, just go try it. It is very difficult. And, and, and we regret it, we feel awful, we repent or ought to repent and confess and then enjoy the fruit of the gospel. One day the gospel is going to be bathing us all the time. There will be no more repentance because there will be no more sin. This is the day we're talking about. I mean, think about it. no more conflict in your family. No more conflict. It doesn't have to be blood and bullets for war. It can take place within your homes. No more conflict. He's promising us that day. No more conflict between people, between husbands and wives, parents and children, neighbors. This day is going to come. And the grace of God that he would make such a promise. They didn't deserve it. They were walking in darkness. They were groping. They had no idea what they were doing, where they were going. They were suppressing the truth of God. And yet God says light shined upon them. It just, it burst upon them. They didn't do anything. They didn't earn his favor. They weren't looking for it. It found them. That's a picture of the grace. This promise of God of this day coming is something you and I are to grab a hold of. Now, I know it may seem far off. It may seem ethereal to you even. But I would have you note that from two to five, he uses all these past tenses. Now, why in speaking about the future would you use the past tense other than to indicate the certainty? of when God speaks, it is as if it has already happened. That is the certainty that the people of God are to have over this. We are to be so certain. And folks, it is important for you to assess in your own introspection, what do you do with the promises of God? Do you think about them? Do you roll them around in your mind? Do you consider them? Do you let them fill you with joy? Are they so distant to you that these promises really have little impact at all? I mean, the promise that God has given to us it's either true or it's not, and if it's true it should it should just cause this rush of joy to come back into this life, even when you're in the midst of the problem. That's the promises of God. they're so certain, they're so sure. I've said before, they ought to be like a lozenger to you. You ought to just let them roll around and enjoy the sweetness. Because one day this will be here. So this is the promise. We have a problem. The problem ultimately is the nature of sin. And sin gives birth to all kinds of conflict. It causes all kinds of conflict, wars, frustrations, anger, bitterness, malice. All of it flows out of our sin. And then God meets that problem with a promise that one day I'm going to take it all away. One day I'm going to bring peace. Even boots and garments are going to be burned. There's going to be a uniting with God, a fellowship, a sweetness with one another that will be, it, it will be unfathomable for us right now in this world. But it begs the question, well, how are you going to do this, God? How are you going to fulfill your promise? Well, look with me at 6 and 7, because this is how God will do it. This is how God is going to keep his promise. He says to us, it is in this context, he says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's incredible that the hope of the nations and the hope of all people for peace and security and safety and fellowship with God rests on a child. Now, it's interesting. Most children are born to parents. This children is born to us, to the people, for us, on behalf of us, for our benefit. He's born to the people. That God's plan to fulfill his promise is not rooted in a new ideology or a new philosophy or a new technology. It's rooted in a person, that, that this person, this child, is going to bear the weight of all the nations to deliver us. The promise of deliverance in two to five falls on the shoulder of a child. It's remarkable. All of our hope, all of our dreams, the, the promise that I just laid out. The government of peace that we'll have one day with God all rests upon the shoulders. And I remember my children when they were born. They had teeny little shoulders. I love those little shoulders. It took a second to, sun, you know, to put sunscreen on them. That was really nice. But they are just sweet little shoulders, and upon the shoulders of this child rests every hope that we have, or ought to rest. But, but you say, well, that's kind of scary. Well, let's look at the child, because Isaiah gives this fourfold description of the child. He's first called the wonderful counselor. Now, some of your translations may have wonderful and counselor, And we sang it as if there were five titles. I I would say there's probably four only because the other three names are in a couplet form. And so this is probably going to be a couplet as well. But wonderful counselor doesn't mean he's really nice to talk to. You you can sit down, you can have a cup of coffee with him. And he's really helpful. Uh, The word wonderful or wonder is really miraculous. He's the miraculous counselor. In other words, all kings and princes and queens and and other dignitaries have kind of advisory board and they're drawing from wisdom out of the world and they're drawing from wisdom out of their own experience. Not this one. This child will be a miraculous counselor. He'll have divine wisdom. He'll have supernatural wisdom that will be able to lead us. He's also the mighty God. This child, now all kings and, and other dignitaries, they may have power and they may have certain degrees of authority. This one is the mighty God. He has all power. The reason I say that is because the word God, El, th- this word that Isaiah uses, every time Isaiah uses this Hebrew word, it applies to Yahweh. So he's literally saying this child is human. He's going to be born, but he is divine. He's the mighty God. He has all power. He has all authority, everywhere, over everything. He's not limited in any way. There is no limitations to his power. He defines life. That's what this child will be. But the thirdly, he's going to be the everlasting father. Now, how is a child a father? Well, I think it speaks more to this child is going to do what a father does. And what a father does is to exercise care and compassion and love and exercise leadership, that this child will be the everlasting, or for perpetuity, that he'll forever, he'll never change, he'll always be exercising care and compassion over his family. He will always be moving towards us with grace and with love. This child will never do you wrong. This child will never do something that serves him better than you. He will always be serving, and leading, and loving, and protecting. That's what this child will do. But then this child is also called the Prince of Peace. Now, he's going to establish a peace. Now, all kings and princes and queens, they they long for peace. They may even work for peace. He will be peace. He's going to establish a peace that is unique among peace. It isn't the cessation of hostilities. It isn't the fact that, you know, it's like kind of the UN comes into a nation and they're keeping the warring factions at bay. It's not that. It's a peace. It's a shalom. It's a rest. There's harmony in relationships. Again, if we turn to our families just for a minute, many of our families have conflict. Now, it may not break the surface, and it may not erupt into screaming and plate throwing and that sort of thing. Our family may be unique in that way, but <laughs> you may not have that. <laughs> but the peace he brings is a peace where we love, enjoy, enjoy, and we are relating to one another with transparency and safety, vulnerability. Weakness is not something to fear. That there is a harmony between God and man and between man and man. That's the piece. Of when, when you look at this child, do you not just wonder? Do you not gaze over these things and just think, I would love to follow a leader like this. I, I would love to submit. You know, they say the best form of government is a benevolent king. That's what they say. He'll care for us. He'll love us. We need authority. We know that. I would love to submit to this child, watching him grow to take his throne. That's That's what Isaiah is offering before us. This child will be the hope of the nations. He's going to fulfill the promise of God to bring about people from being in a world of darkness to a world of light. But he's not just an extraordinary child. He's actually bringing an extraordinary kingdom. Look with me in 7. He says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over the kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness for this time forth and forevermore. This is going to be an unfathomable government. It's going to rest on his shoulders so he bears responsibility for it. And it will be a great government. It's going to be a glorious government because he's going to run it. This one who's wonderful, powerful, compassionate and peaceable, he's going to run this kingdom. It's going to be a great kingdom. It's going to be marked by moral purity. Now think about how we often make joke, jokes of our politicians who struggle with just saying what it is, right? And this is across all parties. So in the debates, a question is asked. How many times, I used to mark, when did they actually answer the question? They didn't answer. They gave me a platform. They gave me a position. They gave me something. They never answered the question. But he'll be a perfect leader in every way. Moral purity, integrity in every way. And there's going to be no end to it. It's going to go on and on and on. Just as God promised to David, he said in 2 Samuel 7, you're going to have a son, and this son is going to establish an everlasting kingdom. This is the fulfillment. This promise that Isaiah, he's just piggybacking off of 2 Samuel. He's just carrying that promise along. He said, still in operation. The promise is still coming. It's going to be a glorious government. I mean, can you imagine all the governments before? The, per- the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. They've all been big, powerful governments. And where are they? Nowhere. Nowhere. This government will never end to which we're invited. It won't come about by any ordinary means. Look at the end of verse 7. Look at the end. He says, The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This isn't going to be done by us. This isn't going to be an electorate. This is going to be God moving with power. In fact, the zeal of the Lord, the passion of the Lord, the passion for his own glory, and the passion for our redemption. He's going to do it. God is so passionate, and you've got to understand this if you're a Christian here. God is passionate about keeping the covenant he established. He established a covenant with Abraham, and he walked through those cut-up animals, assuring us, I will bring about a blessing to the world. So God, for the glory of his own name and for the joy of his people, He will do this. He will do it. This child will not come to be in any ordinary fashion. It wouldn't come about in any normal means. It's going to be radically different, radically. That's the hope we have. We have a problem. That's clear. We see it. We see it on an external level, and we see the problem that we have internally. We fail at even being who we want to be. That's the problem. The promise of God is, I am going to fix the problem. I'm going to bring about a time and a government and a people that will be glorious. Even the boots and the garments will be burned. And I'm going to do it through a son. So it begs the question, who's the son? Who's the child? Well, the New Testament, of course, takes all the mystery away for us. And the New Testament makes very clear that it's Jesus Christ. This is speaking about Jesus Christ. In Luke's Gospel, of course, he records how the angels announce about this child bringing peace. But if you read today, for example, go back and read the first four chapters of Matthew. I must not have shaved closely enough on that side of my face. I'm sorry. Very sensitive mic. uh, If you read the first four chapters of Matthew, you're going to see that Matthew is making very clear for his readership That this Jesus is the one that was promised. You you go unique birth. He would come from a virgin. He would be Emmanuel. He says, no, this child fulfills that Isaiah 7. You'll call him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's what he's going to do. He's going to break the rod of oppression, that oppression of sin, that struggle, that we're never who we ought to be, that we're always fighting with idolatry and issues. He's going to break the hold that it has on us. And then you go further, he records how Magi came. Why did Magi come from the east? By the way, the east, to worship a king. Matthew's saying he's a king. But, but let me tell you where it really gets interesting here. In Matthew chapter 4, here's what he records. He records the beginning of this Jesus' ministry. He says in Matthew 4, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, John was the forerunner announcing the coming of the Messiah. He returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, galley of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, the light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let the weight of this fall on you. Jesus, having certainty over his mission, moves into Galilee, into the very area that was filled with darkness, the land of Zebulun, the land of Nephtali. And he goes there, and what does he do? He preaches the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom that was promised in verse 7 that I just read to you of Isaiah 9. He's saying the kingdom of God is now here. I'm the king. I'm bringing the kingdom. The whole thing right now is on my shoulders. The whole plan of God doesn't rest on you and me, but it rests on him and him alone. He has to do it all. And he goes to this land that knew great darkness, and he begins there to preach this message that I have come. And then he begins a ministry that can't be marked by anything else other than wonderful counselor. He knew the heart of men and women. He discerned thoughts from afar. He gave divine wisdom. His mighty God, his mighty works of calming seas, of raising the dead, of feeding thousands, of cleansing the leper, of of cleansing the demonized, he did it all. There's nothing he did or couldn't do except submitting himself to the Father. He would do all the Father called. But he was the mighty God. He was the everlasting father. You see him compassionate, rebuking the disciples when the disciples have the audacity to try to push the children away from him. He lets them come to him. He goes to the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the disenfranchised and cares for them as only a father would. Nobody else would look at the prostitute except the father of the prostitute would look and care and exercise compassion and concern prince of peace of course we see this and we're going to see it at the table how he is our peace he achieved peace by bearing our sin as we sang and by bearing the wrath of God thereby allowing us to be reconciled to God through faith he's the prince of peace he is our peace as Paul says in Ephesians two fourteen. he himself is our peace he's made the 2 1 and reconciled us to God so this is incredible We have this massive problem, and you see it. I mean, generation after generation after generation, we're no different. We just have cars now. We have electricity. But go back through the hall of time. It's the same problems, divorces, adultery. We've had it all. It's always been there. God says, I'm going to bring an end to it. I'm going to draw you into a kingdom. And the kingdom's going to be glorious with this glorious king. Oh, who? Well, he's Jesus. And he's come, and he's established it, and he's preached it. So what does that leave for us, us in 2013? How, how do we look at these ancient texts? Well, we look at them the same way they did. We have this, cho- we have this choice. Do we submit and, and do we place our faith in the one that God has sent to save us, to bring us to this kingdom, or do we go on struggling in the darkness? And do we go on just, just suppressing the truth? And do we go on looking to the earth for how am I going to deal with the fears of financial insecurity? How am I going to deal with the fears of, of health concerns? How am I going to deal with the conflict in my family? You're going to look to the earth, or you're going to look to the earth, and you might as well look to the dead because it can't help the living, but only Christ can. And so we have this, we have this opportunity here. But what I love about God, what I love about God, is the, and I don't understand it, but the unfathomable grace. God's always reaching out to us. Do you realize in the first incident when, the, when Adam and Eve, our first parents, sin against God and they go hide themselves, they're now probably scheming and making plans, blaming each other. And God in Genesis 3, 9 says, where are you, Adam? Now, let me, let me be the first to tell you. I hope I'm not the first. He wasn't looking for him as if he couldn't find him. It was an opportunity for Adam to come, fall at his feet and repent. I've not followed your word. I've sought my own glory. I've tried to establish my own kingdom. I wanted to be the lawmaker, not the law follower. He could have done that. And all through the pages of scripture, he sends prophet after prophet after prophet. What are these prophets doing? They're calling people back, even under the threat of judgment. The reason the threat's given is to draw them back. But they didn't come back. Isaiah 55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come. In other words, there's no criteria here. Come buy and eat. Come buy, come buy wine and milk without money without price. In other words, there's nothing you can bring to get what I have to offer, this peace. He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? In other words, why do you pursue all the vain things of the world when I have the promise for the problem? He says, listen diligently to me. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I'll make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Again, thinking of 2 Samuel 7. Is it surprising then that in Jesus' ministry in Matthew 11, it's recorded that he says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest for your souls. Should that surprise us? No. No, he's come from the Father. He's come with a message. So how do we respond to this? Well, we come in faith to Jesus Christ. You, you, you turn from your sin. You repent to him, and you, and you cast the safety of your soul into this arms of this king who will lead you into a kingdom forever. You, you, you just, just speak to God. God, I'm, I repent. I'm sorry. Give me Christ. How about for the Christian here, though? You say, well, I've done that. What do you do? What is the Christian? How does the Christian respond to this? How do we as a church respond to this? What does this look like on a corporate level for us? Well, we begin to live, if you're a Christian, you begin to live in light of the principles of this kingdom to which you're now part of. You begin to live in light of these principles. Now, don't succumb to the gospel gap. The gospel gap is an expression for those that want to believe in Jesus, but we don't want to live like Jesus. That they want to commit their lives to Christ, and yeah, I believe so that now I'm going into the kingdom, but I don't want to live like the kingdom would have me live. And so, this kingdom gives markers for us as Christians. Let me give you a few examples. What's it look like for us today? It looks like this as members of his kingdom, and if his kingdom is ever increasing in peace, then we are people of peace. The kingdom is displayed by your peaceableness with people. You're not looking to avoid conflicts. You're not just looking to keep down the fights. You are looking to actively engage in peacemaking. It will be difficult. It will be expensive. It will not always turn out the way you want, but you're called to be at peace with men as much as you're able. Husbands and wives, are you actively striving at reconciling the conflict, those those subterranean simmering conflicts you have? Do you work at those? Carol and I were crosswise with each other a couple weeks ago. And just kind of just, I don't know, we were just not speaking well to each other. Just a little sharp, kind of underhanded comments made. And um, I was sitting in the chair and looking across from her. And I thought, lead, Tom. You, you have sinned against her in some of your comments. Uh, just repent and seek reconciliation. And I'll tell you, the funny thing, it was hard to do. Because I wanted to sit in what I thought I was right on. And I, I wanted to let her start. And I felt the Spirit just pressing on me, lead. And it was not easy. But I led. And uh, she fully repented of all of her sin, which I was <laughs> thankful for. I'd say that as a joke. But, uh, but it, 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 was, it was what struck me about it wasn't my obedience, as because the Spirit did that. What struck me was my resistance. My resistance to not want to do it. But we're members of the kingdom, and so I encourage you to consider those issues. Uh, but also, as members of the kingdom, we are to be people of righteousness. This kingdom is going to increase in righteousness. That doesn't just mean we care for the weak, the unborn, the disenfranchised and the weak. We do that. That's what I love about the Korean ministry. But it also is about the marketplace. Do you speak with integrity? Do you work a full day? Do you do justly for your boss? Do you act with integrity? Do you display a righteousness by giving people credit for the work that they've done? Or are you seeking to get it for yourself so as to move you forward in the business? So righteousness is to be displayed in our speech, in our actions. So thirdly, as members of the kingdom, we are to have a mission focus, a mission desire. You know, you see that his, the increase of his government will know no end. In other words, it's going to, it's going to increase in quantity, but also quality of cultures. It's not going to be one-dimensional kingdom. It's not going to be white. It's not going to be Jewish. It's going to be filled with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And, and we're called to, we're to askew nationalism and individualism and exclusivism. It has no place in the church. We're to be a church of color and culture. Even though it's different, even though it may send, it's a little different than we may be used to. It's part of the greater picture of God. But I would ask you to pray for us. Pray for the elder board. Pray for the mission team. Pray for yourselves that mission isn't relegated. That's something people do when they go overseas. You and I here are to be missional. We're to be concerned about the nations. And when we preach the gospel and people come to faith, the kingdom increases, just like it said in verse 7. But we're also called to be, as members of the kingdom, we are to increase in our distinctiveness. We are to be different from the world. This is a paradoxical kingdom. This kingdom works in terms of of weakness and vulnerability. You have the Assyrian machine coming at Judah, and God furnishes hope in a child. That's the way it works in God's kingdom. If you want to be strong, you're weak. His power is made perfect in weakness. His power doesn't add to your power. His power replaces your power. And so we are to be a people who are to pursue humility, weakness. We may be a small church. We may have low status in Raleigh. I don't know what our status is. It doesn't matter. Smallness is not smallness in God's hand. So we want to be concerned with the nations. And that starts with you. It starts with your family. Comes out of this church. Pray for us. We want to do missions well. And we don't want to do it as a function of the church, but it's across the church. And then then last, I would say this, that as members of the kingdom, we are to be an expectant people, a longing people. Clearly, you must understand we live in the tension right now that exists. This promise in 2 to 5 is not yet here in fullness, but it has been inaugurated in Christ 2,000 years ago. So we live in this tension, and this tension is that we're struggling. The kingdom's coming, the kingdom's growing, but it's not here in its fullness. We want to be praying that we're people longing, looking for that day. We're hungry for the day to come. Are you? Do you think about this? Do you consider it? If our, if our vision is focused on what is ahead of me in the next year or three years, and that's where it stops, then kingdom living is going to be tough for you. Uh, we are called to long to live for, to be expectant for that day to come. And that keeps the fires burning. And it keeps us active. So we have a problem. The problem is sin. It gives birth to all kinds of conflict and trials and tragedies in our life. Uh, God has given us a promise. And this promise has been brought about in the person, the person of Jesus Christ. So let me pray for us. And then we're going to uh, celebrate the table. Father, thank you for this uh, glorious promise. But we thank you not simply for the promise, but we thank you for the son. The son who has brought about uh, the fulfilling and the extending and the perfection of your plan. Lord, we are overwhelmed with such a king. We want to submit to him and uh, live uh, for his glory. Uh, We know that in doing that, we will find our greatest joy. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.